time you're in Berlin and you are in the mood to go and look at Legos, go to Berlin Legoland, which I guess is right in the middle of the city. And there you will find a gigantic giraffe, looks to be about nine feet tall, made of Legos. Somewhere on the giraffe, which is mostly yellow Lego bricks, there is a yellow Lego brick with a geocache in it. And you can find that. Again, take a picture of yourself looking, finding the geocache on the giraffe. Send me the picture or the video there too. And I will send you an Amazon gift certificate uh, worth... Um, up to $5 to be used specifically for um, Dune and Star Wars related paraphernalia. So get in touch, let me know what you find on the giraffe in Berlin, because that to me seems like a great geocache. Welcome to Geocaching Scripture. This is Josh. I want to talk to you about geocaching. Again, geocaching is this rarefied sport hobby of finding these little treasures of that sort of re-enliven um, a, a walk you may be familiar with. You know, we've all been to Berlin. We've all been to Legoland a thousand times. So this kind of like re reinvigorates what you're looking for, gives you something to search for. It's a great thing to do as a family. Um, and that to me is a perfect metaphor of how I read scripture. Now that I've been in the ministry, now that I've um, gone to seminary, and now that I'm reading Bible stuff all the time and... I'm finding that, you know, some of these stories are over-familiar, but finding these geocaches, treasures of language, of cultural situation, history, that sort of re-enliven it for me again and give me that dimension again. And that's what we're going to do today. So, let's geocache. Well, you probably hear the bell in the background from the local Catholic church, and I think that's just wonderful. Um, used to be the only clock in town, you know? People set their whole lives by the sound of the church, and used to be that people set their whole lives and values by the gospel of the church, um, but things have changed. More on that later. Let's look at, again, a familiar story. First of all, let's look at setting. Setting of Jesus' time. One thing you need to know about the world that Jesus lives in, we're talking uh, first century ancient Near East, is that world was extremely religious. Religion was everywhere. There was a temple, a shrine, a synagogue on every single corner. Most of this was Greco-Roman stuff. There was the statues of the gods. There were the temples. There were the healing centers all these different places um, that were everywhere. It deeply shaped their lives and deeply shaped their attitudes about life. Um, and it would be quite different, I think, from our, our, our more secular culture in which um, a lot of, of religious ideas may, may hit us almost in a vacuum, depending on where you live in the country. If you live in the Northwest, you may, um, you may not ever go to a church 
and you may find it completely foreign to you. Um, if you live in the southeast where I grew up, it's going to be more like the ancient Near East where there was uh, a church on every corner, usually, you know, sort of on top of another church. And, um, you know, in between them, there'd be like a bowling alley or something, but it'd be like a Christian bowling alley. And there'd be like Bible studies and stuff going on. That's similar to how the ancient Near East was. So you had religion was everywhere and it defined life deeply. And you had this mix of ethnicities and ethnicities were tied into religion. So the Jews would say, uh, we are Jewish and it's not just what we ascribe to. We are the sons of Abraham. We are very Jewish. We are ethnically and politically and religiously tied up in this worldview, and the Greco-Romans would, would, would say the same about all their different gods and goddesses and about how their life was shaped. So, needless to say, there was tension between these two cultures at different times and different a different spectrum of tension. Um, you had the Greco-Romans who owned everything, and they sort of let the Jews do their thing as long as they didn't get in the way of being Greco-Roman. Um, and they did the same thing with Christians um, when the Christians came about. And both those people groups eventually got in the way of each other. And you had all kinds of different clashes. Um, but one of the things you had going on in the time of Christ was you had a spectrum of, of different uh, thinkers and leaders in the Jewish community. And the way they were positioned towards Rome was part of deeply part of who they were. So you had the Sadducees, which are similar to like the sellouts. They basically integrated their theology with a lot of Roman and Greek thinking and what they they had what you call Hellenized Judaism and they had um, diluted a lot of the ideas so that the Gospels marked them out as those who say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees. Now these often had uh, these political positions and other things so they could be very conversant with Rome and and in in many ways just um, puppets of Rome in interacting with um, Jewish community and then you had the Pharisees who were more separatist more serious about their ideas even the ideas that were that were more difficult the, the thorny apocalyptic ideas of waiting for the Messiah or the messianic age that were separated them from the Greco-Roman atmosphere their values were very very different they were very much set apart, and yet they were still engaged in society, still leading society. You had the Essenes, who were more mystical, who, who essentially like lived in caves and spent their time praying, contemplating, reading, and doing mystical practices, waiting for the kingdom to come. And then on a, on a other sort of far-right extreme, you had the Zealots. And the Zealots were more like... They, they would probably draw a closer relationship to the Al-Qaeda or other groups like that today. Um, they actually did terrorist actions. So they would start insurrections. They would, they would uh, use military power. They would use guerrilla warfare, all these different things to try to get rid of Rome and bring in the kingdom. Now, the Zealots, um, and, and all of these people would have been raised on rhetoric like this, um, and, but to the zealots it would ring particularly loudly. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, 
the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for the peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. This is that, that promise of the great day of the Lord that they would have heard. Now, the zealots took that and said, we need to make power moves toward Rome to get rid of Rome so that the day of the Lord will be brought in among his people. This day, this day, this peaceful age, we will bring this about. Um, other groups would have heard this differently. But the zealots heard that, and that's, that's where we'll focus in on today. So think of the diversity just within the 12 disciples. You had Matthew, the tax collector, who was the ultimate sellout to his people, and who collected taxes for Rome from his people and stole money on top of that, as, as we know. So the taxpayers were, to call someone a taxpayer was an insult, or to, uh, sorry, tax collector was an insult. In the same group of 12 who were together all the time sharing meals, talking to Jesus, was Simon the Zealot. That's not Simon Peter, that's Simon the Zealot, who was part of the Zealot group and would have been one of these guerrilla warfare type of people. So you had this sort of radicalized insurrectionist in the same group with someone who was, who was the sort of lowest of the low in, in a sellout sort of culturally. And in the middle maybe in the middle, you had a very unique person. So at the time in history, among the zealots, you had these group of assassins who were known for using small daggers in up-close warfare. They were the ones who would slip into a crowd, stab somebody who needed to go down, and then slip right back out of the crowd. They used a special dagger called the Sakari. And the Sakari... Um, would have been this small dagger. And one of the theories is that the Sakari, those who used it or were good at it, might have been called the, the Sakariat. And that is where we get the name Judas Iscariot. So one of the working theories is that Judas himself was part of this group of sort of terrorist assassin ninja types. And he was one of these Sakari. He was one of these who was trying to bring in the kingdom by violence. Which brings one of the other working theories as well, that Judas himself was trying to bring about the um, this power in conflict with Jesus. And that perhaps when he was kissing Jesus in the garden to betray him, he was actually thinking... This will corner Jesus into bringing about this day of the Lord, this rhetoric that we've heard our whole lives. He'll have no choice. He'll have no choice at this point. Look with me at Matthew 25 or 26, verse 49. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Do you what do what you came for, friend? The men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will live, will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put my disposal twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen? 
in this way. So we have this moment where perhaps, and we don't know 100% what Judas was doing, but one of the ways to look at this is to see that Judas the Sakari, Judas the warrior, was trying to bring about this conflict and take things into his own hands, bring about the conflict of the authorities and the Messiah so that the, the kingdom would come in. And Jesus says, don't you know I can do this? Don't you know that God can send me 12 legions of angels, but that is not how it's done anymore. Things are different now. With a betrayer's kiss, Jesus answers with the word, friend. When, when Peter pulls out his sword, which Judas would have been adept at using his sword, his dagger, his sakari, Jesus has put that away. That's not the way this is anymore. And Judas, the Sakari, Judas, the warrior, the assassin, who tried to take things into his own hand, sees his plan fall apart. And Jesus says, I will do what the Father wants me to do in this case, even though it may not make sense to you in your way of interpreting it, this is the way it has to be. And they try to stop him constantly. Peter says, no, you will never die. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. They try to stop him and Jesus says, that is the way this is going to be. This is the way it's supposed to happen. And it will not happen by the way you think it will happen, by the way you will institute your particular understanding of what it means for God's kingdom to come into the earth. And we think of leaders now who have asserted their power and have tried to make a Christian heaven on earth. And I'm going to take this into our own community. Think about that. Think of those who have tried to make these atmospheres in which um, our faith entangles itself with power. And I hate to be too specific, but I'm going to be. Um, I went to Liberty University for two years. I was there under Jerry Falwell Sr. back in the 90s. This was somebody who had entangled himself with a lot of powerful people. Um, I believe Jerry Sr. was a good man, but I believe that he had a wrong-headed way of trying to bring about a kingdom on earth that is not bring-aboutable. And I think out of that came a painful legacy of someone like Jerry Falwell Jr., who has now been shown to be way off the path, who has now been shown to be, to have too much power and too much money in one place so that he lost his way, trying to bring in that kingdom on earth which is not of this earth. And so Jesus says to Peter, put away your sword. Jesus says to Judas, those who live by the sword die by it. One of the saddest scenes in Scripture.
Stay with me. Make sure you subscribe. Share this with your friends. This is geocaching scripture. Advertise it from you because that's the best place it comes from. Also, tune into Clear Hits Radio, clearhitsgb.com. It is an extremely well put together Christian hip hop station, and it is going to be fantastic as as the years go on and as it develops. It's going to be amazing. They also do regular ads for geocaching scripture, so you can listen to those. Check us out Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever fine free podcasts are sold. Be good. Pachimena. Cheers.